Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail. Writer and cultural critic Rebecca Carroll grew up the only black person in a small rural New England town. Adopted by white parents when she was a baby, Carroll never met another black person in real life until she was six years old. Her new memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, recounts episodes from her childhood and adolescence in which the people who love her most failed to see her for who she is and how she overcame the feelings of isolation to forge her own identity as a black woman. We'll talk with Rebecca Carroll about her story and about experiences of transracial adoption. That's next, after this news. Good morning. Welcome to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail, and I will be your host in the 9 o'clock hour this week. As you know, Forum is changing. Mina Kim has been named the host of the statewide 10 to 11 a.m. hour, and we're hoping to bring you lots of voices here as we search for a new host at 9 a.m. You may have heard me filling in here and there in recent months, and I look forward to being in conversation with you and a range of guests in the coming days, starting with today's guest, Rebecca Carroll. She's the author of several books, including Sugar in the Raw, Voices of Young Black Girls, in America and has written for outlets such as the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Essence. She previously served as a cultural critic at public radio station WNYC and as a critic at large for the LA Times. And she joins us now to talk about her new memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, about growing up as a black girl who was born to a white mother and black father and raised by white adoptive parents in a small rural town, and about her journey to claim her identity as a black woman. Welcome to Forum, Rebecca Carroll. Hi, thanks for having me. So I know over the course of this conversation, we'll be unpacking kind of your experience with the white gaze. But I thought it might be helpful if we kind of started with a shared definition for this conversation um, of that. So how do you define the white gaze? You know, I think that that is an interesting, it's an interesting idea, right, to have a shared definition of it. Um, mm-hmm. As I have done this virtual tour and responded to that question, I keep sort of thinking about ways in which I can kind of diversify my answer. Ah. Um, because <laughs> the simplest form is, you know, the, the simplest definition is it's the default. It mm. is the the backdrop of America. It is the approximation or proximity um, to whiteness that that decides the standard of beauty, the standard of intellect, the standard of education, the um, the standard of of <clears throat> style, all of these things. It's a default. It is what is white or what is in proximity to whiteness 
is what is valuable. And so tell us about some of your earliest memories of what life was like in rural New Hampshire with your parents, who you refer to as mom and dad in the book. You sometimes refer to your dad as Dave, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you kind of place well, us in that childhood? In book, yeah. Right. As I write in the book, um, an open uh, with the chapter of the first six years of my life, were, which were truly idyllic. Uh, we lived on in an old farmhouse on the top of a dirt hill road surrounded by nature and gardens. And my mom was um, incredibly attentive to me and my older brother and sister who are um, my parents' biological children. You know, we played all day and we had tea in the afternoon and my mom would make fresh cookies. And, you know, it was really, it was idyllic, but for some things that I won't get into here that, that come to, um, you know, that come to a head later on in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, But I opened that way so that folks could, I mean, that if we're talking about definitions of the white gaze, that's the white gaze, right? Mm -hmm. A, a, a childhood, a atmosphere, a microcosm completely void of race, completely void of blackness. Um, And just in the, through the lens um, of my, of my, particularly my dad, but my parents, sort of scope of what idyllic means. And you got to know your biological mother, Tess, um, a white woman, when you were young, um, 11 years old, was it? Yeah. At that time? Mm -hmm. And for a long time, you sought her approval. I mean, that's that's a big piece of the book. But and and you were seeking her approval also when Tess held some racist views about Black people and would, would express them to you in conversation, which was heartbreaking to read about. Can you talk about some of the layers of that relationship and how it impacted you? Well, I would say that for any adoptee, um, this sort of strange kind of fantasy of where you came from um, and, and you know, it's it's kind of this dichotomous feeling of fantasy because these this this woman or these parents must be extraordinary but also they didn't choose to keep me so there is you know this sort of inherent kind of hope and desire and constant reconciliation with the sort of deeply internalized abandonment um but i also you know was an incredibly social um, outward <clears throat> expressive child. Um, I was really creative and I, and I just was full of, of absolute innocence and naivete about meeting this, this woman who I just was so excited to meet and, and know about and connect to. Um, and that was not how she came to it. Um, and so, you know, it was imp- it was almost impossible for me. And what I knew is that she had given me up as a teenager. She was 17 when she had me. And so it was really hard for me to separate that 17-year-old from the 27-year-old um, who I met, who was dealing with her own sort of, um, you know, trauma and and feelings about having given me up, although she was the one to reach out um, for us to meet. So it was fraught, obviously, from the beginning, including the fact that I was too young um, and was given sort of free reign to choose whether or not I wanted to, you know, pursue that relationship. My parents were fairly laissez-faire as parents. 
And so I, you know, I sort of went into this off into this bizarre sunset of, of, of trying to win her approval while also trying to hold on to whatever sense of self I had as an 11 year old coming from this weird idyllic, you know, artist family while also starting to, starting to have these experiences that, that sort of marked my race in a way that was, I didn't really have, I didn't really have the tools and I certainly was taken aback uh, by the first couple of things that happened early on. You know, my teacher, my fifth grade teacher telling me I was pretty for a white, for a black girl. Um, that was bad enough, but the part that came after was really what, what scarred me, I would say, is that most black girls are very ugly. Um, and other sorts of things that happened. And my birth mother um, was kind of cavalier in her um, appropriation and or understanding um, or presumption of blackness and race in a way that I didn't understand as racist until much later on. Hmm. And I know some of that tension you navigated showed up when Tess showed you a couple pictures of your birth father, Joe Banks, for the mm -hmm. first time. Can you talk about that moment and how she talked about him? And then um, and then I know I asked about uh, having you read an excerpt um, and then we can transition into that. But first, tell us that that moment of seeing the photos of your birth father. Sure, sure. Well, I it was actually the very first question that I asked her when we met when I was 11 years old, I asked her about him. What was he like? And she said, basically he was a dog. And so we didn't talk about him um, until I was in my, I mean, I, as a teenager, when I was, when I started to um, seek out and socialize with uh, other black teenagers and peers in the town where she lived, which boasted a small um, black community. And she showed me these pictures and I remember feeling connected to them in the way that, you know, I had started to have black friends. I had started to be attracted to and drawn to black boys. And I started thinking, what would it be like to hear my black father talk to me about these boys or how to carry myself or you know, just my path. Um, and it was, you know, it was a really like, um, I got lost in this moment of looking at these pictures, you know, this profile, he had this chiseled jaw and sunglasses and he just looked so cool. Um, and he was mine in that moment of looking at those pictures. And then I said to my birth mother, do you know if I was his only child? And she said, I, I don't know, but you know, black men are out here having kids with all sorts of different women. So who knows? And it's sort of like, it was, it just it decimated that moment of, you know, of reverie that I was having. Um, and that was also sort of, again, one of those instances where I was like, that's not good, but I didn't know how to identify it as racism. And also, you know, all of the all of the sort of guiding forces, you know, the, the people that you defer to for definition, for, um, <clears throat> for understanding, for giving you the tools of understanding, they were all white. All, all of the parents in this particular carousel, my adoptive parents, my birth mother, my teachers, everybody was white and nobody had given me the tools 
and or the permission the permission to call out something as racist. Right. And another striking thing, and actually, because we're going to be coming up on a break soon, so um, we'll hold the excerpt for, for when we come back. Okay. Um, but there was, I noticed that you also sometimes use kind of the language of addiction in terms of talking about that relationship with your mother. And that's, and it really kind of brings out this seeking that you had of just really trying to, where you hadn't been given that language and tools of like, really kind of latching on to kind of whatever came in, whether it was kind of toxic mm. or not in those definitions. Um, can you right. speak a little, um, we have maybe about a minute and a half, but um, speak a little bit about those those feelings. Because I know you said, I folded into the mere sound of Tessa's voice, dizzying liquid and lethal, like freebase cocaine shimmering in its heated spoon. I mean, that's quite a quite an image. So, so again, going back to the kind of <clears throat> adoptees and this already kind of reconciliation with, abandonment, right? You pair abandonment with something that feels good from the person who gave you away. And that is drug-like, right? She is, was super charismatic, super funny, really bright. Um, and I, I was so young that it was easy to, to sort of lose myself in the power of her existence, her personality, in the hope that that would ultimately result in her love and acceptance. We're talking with Rebecca Carroll, cultural critic and author of Surviving the White Gaze about transracial adoption and growing up black in a white family. What questions do you have for Rebecca Carroll? Does her experience with the white gaze resonate with you in any way? Do you have an experience of transracial adoption as an adoptive parent or a person who was adopted? Share your experience with us. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Mariana Prail. More back after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. We're talking with writer and cultural critic Rebecca Carroll, author of the new memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, about being adopted as a child into a white family in a white town and her journey to find her identity as a black woman. And before the break, uh, we were talking about um, your experience of seeing the photos of your um, birth father for the first time. And it was that conversation with your your birth mother, Tess, that sparked your interest in asking your dad, um, your adoptive father, about any relationships he had with black people. And so I'm wondering if you can read uh, the excerpt of that exchange in your book for us. Sure. The blacks mostly kept to themselves, dad said plainly, when I asked him if he'd ever had any black friends. But I mostly was interested in girls and turtles, of course. But there were black students at your school in Groton, right? Dad had gone to a public high school in Groton, Connecticut, which he'd told me before was integrated with black students. Yes, 
a handful, he said, but like I said, they really just preferred to keep to themselves. Did you ever think that might be about self-preservation in a predominantly white environment? I never really thought about it, Beck, Dad said. Did you think about trying to make friends with any of them? They were interested in being friends. They weren't interested in being friends with white people. And since then, though, I said, struggling to map this out in my brain, no black friends. You and mom have never had black friends. Well, look around, Beck, dad laughed, thinking the whiteness of our town and immediate surroundings was funny. That's kind of my point, dad. Look around. Of course, there was my friend Lee Ling when I was at the museum school, dad offered, and he was just a great friend and all. Also Chinese. Yes, Lee Ling was this little Chinese guy, funny as hell, dad said. I don't know, Beck, I've mostly just chosen to live in places where there aren't that many humans in general. I really need to be around the natural world. But didn't you think it might be important if you're raising a Black child for her to see other Black people? Mom and I both really thought the world was changing and that people were coming toward each other, Dad said. We really believed what Martin Luther King was saying. And, you know, we had those wonderful years on the hill together and all. And this beautiful house we have now, I mean, how lucky are we? I didn't show the two pictures I had of my birth father to dad. Instead, I kept them and him and us to ourselves, like the black kids he described in high school. Hmm. <clears throat> so the invocation of Dr. King is really striking mm-hmm. there because it feels like a shield, you know, from having to face a perhaps uncomfortable reality, the reality you were experiencing, right? Feeling isolated, all the microaggressions you you write about experiencing at school. That's not new. I mean, y- you know, that's the, the use of Martin Luther King as a tool for white liberals to deflect racism is, you know, has been um, as far back as I can recall as a black child growing up in, in white rural New Hampshire. Um, But I also think it's so indicative of where the thinking and the engagement stopped for them. You know, it was this moment of civil rights. It was this moment where Martin Luther King was trying to bring everybody together. And that was enough for them to sort of proceed with their plan without thinking what might happen um, after, you know, not not just Martin Luther King being assassinated, but all of the work that was being done for civil rights and black folks and that there was no engagement whatsoever with that in regard to their own lives, for their own education, but as parents of a Black child. Let's go to a caller, Mike in El Cerrito. You're on. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, My question is for, um, you know, white parents who have considered adopting and generally um, look at it um, through a lens of openness, uh, no uh, preconception as to race of a child that you might want to adopt and just having an open household to any race, um, you know, is there really, um, you know, a, a downside to uh, adopting a person of color for, for their best interest? Um, you know, it seems like there's a great opportunity for at least there to be confusion or at worst there to be a lifelong, um, you know, deep troubled sense of self and um, I, I would want to make sure that I'm doing the best thing for the child. And it seems like the most open thing would be sh- surely to not have any preconception of race, but isn't in fact damaging to, um, you know, 
to approach it in that way, um, it's, it's really, I, I would want to make sure it's best for the child, but at the same time, you know, it, it seems like it could be, you know, very tricky, and I would like to hear your perspective for white parents who are considering to do this in the right way. Thanks, so Mike. a couple things, a couple things there. Thank you for the question. Um, first of all, what is what does openness mean? See, this this is one of those things that I feel white adoptive potential white adoptive parents sort of approach this idea as being open. Open to what? Open to something that is other than white, right? There again is where the white gaze play, plays into it. You know, not having preconceived notions about race. It's not about having preconceived notions. It's about having a con a conversant. Uh, level of awareness around race. Um, and, and in terms of what is right for the child, again, the white gaze, you know, the, the, the presumption that, that white parents can, can even make that decision for a black child or a child of color, the, the way to approach it is by, um, is by deference and education. And, you know, what is right for a child or a black child or a uh, adoptive child of color is for white parents to be as engaged as immersed and conversant in wh whatever culture, race or ethnicity of the child they are adopting without appropriating or exotifying. And I've heard kind of re related um, and that too is I've heard you say that well-meaning and well-intentioned are useless terms at this point. Can you share more about what you mean by that? Because I feel like it ties in kind of with with Mike's question in terms of wanting to go without the preconceived motions or having this well, in, you know, intention behind um, not, you know, appro you know, talking about race with with your child or or something like that. Because what we did in this country is we went, you know, the dynamic between white people and black people, we went from enslavement to, okay, you can have your freedom. Okay, maybe we'll let you drink from this boss. Okay, actually, I mean, all of this kind of like um, giving permission for us to exist is not a good indicator of, of, there's no real evolution or or arc that that makes me feel like white parents necessarily or inherently know how to manage a black child or child of color given the dynamic that has been at the um, at the center of this country uh, in terms of race. Um, and so this notion of, of well-meaning also comes from that same place of I'm, I mean well, I'm well-intentioned, but what is the intention? What We have to interrogate what it means for a white person to say, my intentions are pure. Shouldn't, shouldn't your intentions not even be part of this? <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't you just abs actually be in conversation with the the reality of this person's experience? We're talking with Rebecca Carroll, cultural critic and author of Surviving the White Gaze about transracial adoption and growing up black in a white family. 
Let us know what questions you have for her, if her experience with the white gaze resonates with you in any way, and do you have an experience of transracial adoption as an adoptive parent or a person who was adopted? Share your experience with us. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So... Something else that, while reading your memoir, had me um, reflecting on how difficult it is to process an understanding of racial identity as a child and as an adolescent when no one has provided, as you were saying before, and I want to come back to this, that no one has provided a space for that or given you language. And for as much as we might like to say, well, kids shouldn't be burdened with that, or your dad, you know, invoking Dr. King is kind of a getting get out of talking about race card. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we live in a society where race and racism are factors, are reality. Um, and I think about the scene where you've met Jasmine, a black girl who invites you to hang out with her and her friends on a school trip, and you respond... I'd love that. And then correct yourself to say, I mean, yeah, that'd be cool. You know, a correction (laughs) that kind of came from wanting to sound less, quote unquote, white and more, quote unquote, black. And I think those kinds of moments speak to this, you know, desire to reconcile something. This is a young brain, you know, trying to make sense of feeling different and not fully um, accepted. Can you talk about what that felt like for you? Because there were a number of instances through the course of the book where you're in a place of literally searching for the language of how you want to be in the world. I love that you that you um, brought up that interaction because it's really such a joy to reflect on. And I mean, part of that was I was so excited, like I had to sort of rein myself in that she had extended this invitation. So I wanted to sound less white, but also less like a geek, you know, like less like someone who was just, yes, I would love that. Um, but it was also a, a moment where it would have been super useful to know that that's that that was sort of code switching. Right. Like nobody ever told me anything about that, the idea of sounding white or sounding black, um, and that I could be, that I could do both, that that was within my right, um, as opposed to being judged by um, mainly my white peers and my white birth mother. Um, but that, but what that felt like was real. It felt, I didn't feel like I was pretending. It felt like I was at the sort of nascent stages of learning this language mm-hmm. and um, and that that Jasmine was was really welcoming um, in that. Let's go to another caller, Dell in Oakland. You're on. Hi. Um, I hear a lot of white parents who adopt children of color say, oh, well, they'll be okay. They'll work it out. Um, I'm actually a white parent of a a beautiful black young man, and um, I'm blessed enough that his his mom is, his birth mom is in the picture. But growing, you know, I am very aware um, that there is going to have to be representation for him in his, in his life. Like you, you need to, to expose him to people that are, are like him, you know, um, we're, we're both females. And so, um, for me, it's, we need to work hard on finding him a black represented male that, that he can look up to that he, you know, not just one, but, these are things that as a parent, you need to think about. You need to um, make sure that your child is represented in, in, their, in, in your life um, at all times. And so for white parents to be like, oh, they're going to be okay. Um, 
no, there, there needs to be history. We don't teach black history in school, period, um, which is a major problem. But these are things that we need to think about. Our child is going to learn about black history. That's the first thing he's going to learn about because that's our job as parents is to make sure that they feel comfortable in their skin. Thanks for that comment, Dell. And I'm just going to add, there's a, a listener tweet and says, isn't separating a child from her cultural experience a form of emotional abuse? Um, your your reaction to, to both Dell's comment and this, this listener tweet, Rebecca? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, and I write about this in the book. It's like, who thinks, who thinks that, <clears throat> taking a black child adopting a black child into a white family into an all-white town all-white schools is healthy who thinks that only somebody who is willing to uh who who thinks it's fine for themselves to go from cradle to grave without having black folks in their lives prioritizing their own needs which is void of blackness which is unhealthy, abusive. I, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't probably go to that extreme because there's so many other things that I have experienced that are abusive in the context of race. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, it's enormously problematic. And I would say to Dell's response uh, or, or comment, um, it is important for, to have representation, but it's also important to have en- engagement. So it's not just a role model. It's not just two or three teachers, although that is extremely important as well, but it's important for Dell to not just hand off her son to her son's birth mother or, you know, whatever uh, black role model, but for Dell to also be deeply engaged with black history and black culture in a way, again, uh, that is not appropriative or exploitative. And that is something that white folks have had a really, really tough time and a really lousy track record with. Can you kind of take us through a moment of like when you realized that the white gaze was defining how you saw yourself? I know they're kind of it kind of came in phases, but do you remember kind of when that first kind of aha was when you're just like, oh, wait, I this is this is a completely kind of warped (laughs) view that's happening. You know, I'm I'm. I'm some in some ways embarrassed to say, like it wasn't until I was in my 20s and I heard Toni Morrison use the term. Like I didn't even know I'd never heard the term white gaze before. And um, she was on the Charlie Rose show where I was working and I was in the control room and I remember her starting to talk about it. And I was like, oh, my God, that's it. That's what I've been trying to get out from under. That's what I've been trying to reconcile. That's what I've been trying to define. Um and that was that was the aha moment. Uh, and and you know, then I actually, well, I just thought we might go to we actually have a cut of that because um, oh, that I okay, think might great. be be great to play and then um, to kind of just flesh yeah. out that that story. So here was Toni Morrison responding um, and talking about the white gaze. I remember a review of Sula in which the reviewer said this is all well and good. But one day she, meaning me, will have to face up to the real responsibilities and get mature and write about the real uh, confrontation for black people, which is white people. As though our lives have no meaning and no depth without the white gaze. And I've spent my entire writing life 
trying to make sure that the white gaze was not the dominant one in any of my books. Uh, so, again, that was Toni Morrison on The Charlie Rose Show. And you were on set that day, as you were describing. You mm-hmm. were associate producer of that show at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so continue with just kind of when when that really kind of hit you. Well, first of all, Sula was my favorite, is my favorite Toni Morrison book that I discovered in college. So when she was talking, when she, when she started with Sula, my, you know, already um, ears had perked up. Um, but then, you know, just this this notion of, of her dedication, her resolute devotion to to writing pages and pages and characters and characters and without any white people. Like it was, the idea was so, um, it was almost achingly appealing to me, both as a writer and as a black woman. And I didn't really realize it was possible. Um, you know, until I discovered her writing and, and you know, others, Jordan Neil Hurston and Audre Lorde and the rest in, in college. But it was that moment when I heard her say it that I felt I had to I had to figure out how to reconcile with the ways in which I had been damaged by the white gaze. We're talking with Rebecca Carroll, cultural critic and author of Surviving the White Gaze about transracial adoption and growing up black in a white family. Let us know what questions you have. If you have an experience of transracial adoption as an adoptive parent or a person who was adopted, give us a call at 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Ariana Prail. More with our guest, Rebecca Carroll, after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. We're talking with writer and cultural critic Rebecca Carroll, author of the new memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, about being adopted as a child into a white family in a white town and her journey to find her identity as a black woman. So let's go to another caller, Julaine in Oakland. You're on. Hi. Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you for your responses to the question so far. But my question is, how have you been accepted or not accepted in the Black community? Um, I'm a transracially adopted Korean, and I regularly experience marginalization by the Asian American community. And I'm just wondering what advice you would have to transracially um, adopted people to how to be um, how how to deal with that and the navigation of the communities that they are a part of, but yet are often excluded from. Thanks, Jillian. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, and so I would say that in college, when I had my first black professor, you know, that was the first time that I sort of realized or that, that there wasn't just one way to be black. 
and that that we are not a monolith. You know, that, that's something we talk about a lot um, now, but back then, not so much. And that was a very freeing thing for me. Um, and I started a Black Student Union without knowing what I was doing at all. You know, I had certainly had um, Black uh, peers question, you know, my authenticity about the way, you know, based on the way that I dressed and that I clearly had no idea what I was doing with my hair and, um, and, and so forth. Uh, but I, but when I realized and embraced the idea that we are not a monolith and that we could be, um, that I can be black the way that I want to be black. And this did not happen overnight. Um, I decided, you know, that 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 would sort of be the guiding force in my early work, right? So I have done five books of interview-based, um, five interview-based book, which are books which are all about um, blackness and black culture and black writing. The the most sort of um, commercially su- successful one is Sugar in the Raw, which is about young black girls. And I traveled all across the country and interviewed over fifty girls from you know Burlington, Vermont with, you know, in a rural setting similar to mine, to Oakland, to, um, you know, Birmingham, um, just to sort of verify for myself that we didn't have to be one way. And so I, I would say to, you know, I mean, I, I can only speak for my own, for my experience, but I can, I can say having, having had Korean and Chinese adoptive friends and uh, mentees that, you know, it's a conversation with the folks who are marginalizing you, and it's a it's a willingness and a um, and a sense of self that you can bring to the to the conversation, where you call out that marginalization and stand you know stand in your space, stand in in, in your sense of self, because no matter what anybody says, you are Korean American, you are that. However, you choose to express that, cultivate that, live in that, that is. That is your authentic identity. And Rebecca Carroll, can you also talk about the role of chosen families, somewhat Mm. related, in helping you become yourself? Yeah. Um, Thank God for chosen family. Um, So my one of my best, uh, dearest friends to this day, we, you know, we met when we were in our early 20s and we moved to New York together to Brooklyn. now our sons are a year apart, you know, we spend holidays together, but, you know, unlike I had had kind of interactions with black folks um, starting in my teen years and then in college and I had black boyfriends and um, black colleagues. Um, when I met Corinne, it, she just felt like family. Like it was just an immediate thing. Um, and I have long sort of said to her, I hope you don't feel like this tremendous pressure to be everything for me in terms of blackness. And she said, you know, I mean, she always says this, but, but there was something missing and I knew that and I could stand in that space and it didn't feel weighty at all. And so that's that, you know, that's just what, that's what family should be, I think. Um, And I'm deeply, deeply grateful for it. And I, I encourage folks, especially um, transracial adoptees to find to- chosen family. So I have a comment here from Patrick, who's kind of, we're getting a couple that are like this, that are a bit of kind of pushback that would just be interesting to hear your response to. Patrick writes, has 
Your guest thought about all the sacrifices her adopted parents made to raise her. Why paint them with such generalizations? I adopted kids from my drug-addicted cousin. My father struggled with addiction and mental health, and my mother used to say terrible things about him. It had nothing to do with being racist. It just had to do with people being in pain and feeling let down and disappointed. Maybe your guest is being a bit unfair to her adopted parents. What do you, um, what do you say to, to Patrick? I say to Patrick that he should read the book. Um, because I don't paint my parents with broad strokes. Um, and I don't feel that I uh, am unfair towards them. Uh, any memoirist will tell you, particularly if their family or who they're writing about are still alive, you know, you have to approach it with a, a kind of radical compassion. Um, and that, that, I hope, is what I did. In terms of sacrifice, again, read the book, but my parents didn't believe in sacrifices. That wasn't their MO. They were... Um, they are artists, creatives, um, uh, very, very much into us all being individuals. Um, they were, they, they were not, they were hands off parents. They didn't believe in making sacrifices, um, for us as such. That's not, you know, that's not the, that wasn't the plan. So I, I don't often sort of think back on the sacrifices they made because I don't think that they made that many. Um, and I could say, you know, it's not my story to tell, but my my sister would probably agree. Um, but then in terms of like, I don't know if Patrick is black or white, but this idea of, of doing us a favor or doing drug addicted children a favor um, is really problematic. It's it's kind of this, this sort of savior mentality um, wherein, I mean, should kids have drug addicted parents? No, but there isn't, there's this kind of sense of um, condescension about it. And rather than um, a kind of a, a reality or a realness or an engagement with that, that experience without sort of placing this immediate judgment that, that those parents who are drug addicted are bad people. It's not a moral, you can't place a moral judgment on folks who are struggling um, with, with their choices and with their addictions and with their living um, circumstances. And when kids are involved, yes, there should be stability, um, but there should not be a moral judgment. Again, we're talking with Rebecca Carroll, cultural critic and author of Surviving the White Gaze about transracial adoption and growing up black in a white family. And you can join the conversation if you have any questions or have an experience you'd like to share of transracial adoption as an adoptive parent or a person who was adopted. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Let's go next to caller Rosemary. Uh, Rosemary in Livermore. Rosemary, you're on. Hi, thank you. Um, and thank you for this book, Ms. Carroll. Um, it resonates. I um, was 14, became, um, well, I was a runaway. And my lover was um, a Yakima Indian from the state of Washington. So I was a ward of the court and, and was, and my son was given up for adoption. So after 30 years or more, um, he called me on the phone. He looked for me for a long, long time. And so we um, we tried really, really hard to connect and to, um, and I found that what I had done was turned him out, so to speak. I abandoned him. 
but I was 14, um, to a Mormon family. And so he, as, as the years passed and we talked and, um, and met, I understood that he had never had any um, indigenous friends. He had no black friends. And so he was raised um, in a white middle-class Mormon home. He had a lot of a lot of um, the perks that I certainly couldn't have given him, but there was something missing. And I think Ms. Carroll is absolutely right. Uh, he would mm-hmm. say things. These were throwaway lines like, um, "Well, I tried to volunteer once at a, um, a homeless shelter where there were a lot of uh, um, uh, Indian guys, and they hated me." And I thought, "Oh." And it was a throwaway line, and he did he did that a lot, and so he was he went to an all white he was in an all white Mormon town and uh, went to an all all white school. Um, his Mormon parents, who uh, certainly took good care of him, believed that they were a step closer to heaven because that's part of the Mormon uh, mm-hmm. faith to think that that Native Americans are pretty much sent by um, God. And and so, and we're just a special race, a very yeah. special race. So after all of those years, I have to say, it did not turn out well. It really didn't. He also looked for his father, his, his Native American father, and well, found him and was... I'm sorry, yeah. please go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just, um, just because we're, we don't have a ton of time left in the hour, but wanted to thank you for sharing for sharing that story. And it sounds like, yeah, again, just seeing some more of these patterns. I don't know, Rebecca Carroll, if you had any... Any reflections? Just that, that, and thank you for sharing that, but just the throwaway line, you know, which is, are the ones that are the most traumatic because they're the most internalized. You know, as I said earlier, my fifth grade teacher told me I was very pretty for a black girl, which that was the outfacing sort of racism that I talked about a lot when I was growing up and trying to understand, um, you know, my identity, but the, but, but the part that really, really messed me up was the quote unquote throwaway line, which is most black girls are ugly. I mean, she's, she just tossed it out and, and I received it and internalized it, um, in well into my twenties. So I, my heart just goes out, um, to your son. In the comments, Stephen writes, on the one hand, acknowledging the experience and identity of race in a person of a different race gives us more empathy, compassion, and perhaps a deeper level of respect. But isn't talking about and focusing on race reinforcing the impersonal labels, attributes, and stereotypes? Doesn't it deprioritize individual personality and the, quote, content of their character? I know this is kind of going back to to a bit of the conversation we had um, with kind of Dr. King and... um, and just yeah, whether you have that conversation or the, not, and the in the pitfalls, uh, but also listen. Yeah, I mean the content of my character is black, right? So you can't separate the two things. I think that's absurd. Um, and I also feel like the 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 presumption there is my individuality is only valuable if I if I separate myself from my racial identity, which is actually racist. <laughs> I mean, uh, thank you to the caller or for, for the question. Um, but but I absolutely uh, reject the notion that the content of my character um, cannot exist without the value of my blackness. And let's try to go to one more caller. Kay in Berkeley, you're on. Thank you to the caller or, or for the question. 
Oh, Kay, are you there? It sounds like we're hearing your radio in the background. Um, all right, we'll try coming back to you in a moment. Um, but uh, another question I had for you, Rebecca Carroll, is there's a TV show I enjoy called This Is Us on NBC, which I'm sure you're familiar with has maybe come up in other interviews. I've heard of it, yeah. yeah. Which includes a character, Randall, played by Sterling K. Brown, brilliantly, um, who was black and is adopted at birth by the Pearsons, a white family. And, and I think, you know, as someone who hasn't had the experience of transracial adoption, think the show has done a really good job, though, of exploring the layers of Randall's journey of self-discovery and the issue of race. And I know your book has been optioned to become a TV show. What do you hope increased visibility of these kinds of transracial adoption stories handled in a critical, intentional way, not just for kind of diversity sake and casting will do? Do you see an opportunity there? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I, I do love this is us and i'm trying to get a copy of my book into the hands of randall because i think he would appreciate it mm-hmm. <laughs> um the opportunity here you know we've got colin kaepernick's story coming out um uh by way of ava duvernay um this you know my my project <clears throat> and i'm working on a couple of other projects as well what i hope the opportunity will allow is for folks to realize and see that adoption stories are not just about adoption. They're bigger than adoption. There are so many interesting um, layers and complexities and insights and experiences. And certainly um, in this moment of quote unquote racial reckoning, you know, particularly black adoptees who have existed in the parameters of whiteness for, for our for our lives um, have a lot to say and share about building on this reckoning. I think we have Kay with us now in Berkeley. Let's try and, and squeeze you in. Kay, you're on. Um, I'm a white adoptive parent of a biracial son. It sounds a lot like Rebecca. Um, but he grew up and I lived in a mixed race, mixed class neighborhood in Berkeley right next to the Oakland border but I but it wasn't enough I only realized later and I talk about it in my book Creole Son that um, all of my family extended family all of my friends except for one and all of the neighbors that I was friends with were white and he then had a, a lot of um, you know, he could make black friends and mixed race friends and Filipino friends and so forth, which was good, but it separated us. Um, and I would do it very differently now. I mean, I'm older and he's 40. And um, but so at any rate, I just wanted to say that it's not only growing up in a rural community or an all white community. That's the problem. It is that white people have to educate themselves and try to figure out how they can, um, you know, be part of a yeah. of a black community, well, and thanks. that's hard. Yeah, thank you for for sharing that that comment, Kay and Rebecca Carroll. We just have a couple minutes left, and I wanted to, to kind of get a closing question with you because I I saw um, you'd written um, that while you were in the process of writing this book, it was for a piece um, uh, during t- at, after Toni Morrison had passed where you say, quote, I may finally break free in writing this book. I may finally break free from the white gaze that I've worked so hard to survive. So I'm curious now that you have completed the book. I'll ask, Mm -hmm. did you find that freedom? Yes, Um, I found um, the intellectual freedom 
the emotional fortitude and and what ultimately surviving the white gaze means to me is not just having survived but having become hmm. the black woman who I am today and I know that um, a lot of black women writers were were an influence in in that way as well and it sounds like even would you would you potentially recommend kind of writing um, for for folks who are kind of grappling maybe in a similar position that you were being able to write and process their story in that way yes I mean we, we don't have not publishing <laughs> have time, that's like publishing to, a to, memoir to, but you right, know right I mean I journaling. I am um I am 50, right? And so I waited a long ass time to, to write this book. I can't imagine having tried to, to write a memoir. I mean, I, I did try in my 20s, but um, the, I, had to, I had to arrive at a place where I could stand in agency of my truth. Um, and I encourage, I mean, I was a devout journaler, and so I certainly encourage people to journal, but memoir writing is a, an enormous right. undertaking that, that requires a great deal of, uh, of foundation, emotional foundation. Well, thank you for taking the time to write and share your story with us. We've been talking with Rebecca Carroll, author of Surviving the White Gaze. I'm Ariana Prell. This is Forum. And we'll have more in the next hour with Mina Kim. Thanks for joining us. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.